Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, good morning. How are you? Let's go. Isaiah chapter 61 is where we find ourselves today as we're working through this short Advent series. Advent meaning looking to the coming of Jesus. And we've been working through some some beautiful passages in Isaiah. And this morning we're going to be in Isaiah 61, just the first four verses. So if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. that is our gift to you if you don't own a Bible and keep that. And if you're not look, used to looking up verses in the Bible, you can find the page number of Isaiah 61 there on the screen. Same copy of God's Word, same version, just two different printings of it. So that's why there's two different page numbers. As you're finding Isaiah 61, you, you should also put a thumb in Luke chapter 4 because we'll be there as well at the beginning. In just a moment, we'll work through that passage In Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. As you're finding that, let me mention a couple things just to update the Crosspoint family on ways that you can be praying for some folks in our church. One, uh, Robert and Sigourney Ward. Robert's one of our pastors, as you know. They had a baby girl about a month, a little over a month ago, little Sarah Joy. And uh, little SJ, as she goes by as her nickname, um, is uh, been having some eating and breathing problems and has been in the hospital quite a bit. And just this last week, uh, Sarah Joy was sent up to the hospital in Atlanta, Children's Hospital there, and she's going to have surgery tomorrow, about 2.30 in the afternoon, and uh, hopefully that surgery will help her breathe a little bit better and eat a little bit better, but they're likely looking at a hospital stay for a couple weeks after that, so um, it's going to be a kind of an interesting holiday season for the Ward family, so please be in prayer for Robert and Sigourney and their precious little girl, Sarah Joy. And then also, I want to update you. I know many of you are likely aware, but some dear folks in this church, members of this church, Greg and Debbie Bennett, their son Thomas, um, his young wife Emily, who was also the sister of a young man who's a member of this church, John Anders, and her parents, Chris and Mark Anders, are very well-known people in the Christian community in Columbus. Uh, Emily very unexpectedly passed away uh, this past Tuesday. She was 23 years old. Her and Thomas had just been married for six months. And it was a very sad and very tragic situation. And yesterday we uh, had the funeral down in Albany, Georgia, where Thomas and Emily were members of a great church there, Sherwood Baptist. Uh, It was just a wonderful tribute to her life. Uh, it, It was the largest funeral that I've ever seen. Hundreds and hundreds of people were there mourning her. But due to just the tragic nature of the end of her life, uh, it, this will be very difficult for Greg and Debbie and Thomas and their daughter, who was dear friends with her sister-in-law. So please do be in prayer for the Bennetts. Uh, this afternoon, they're, they're doing the burial service with the family. Uh, but, but this will be a, a, a challenge for that sweet family, and they are sweet people. Emily knew the Lord. And um, she is with Jesus. We can take great comfort in that. But please do be in prayer for the Bennetts. And then for the wards tomorrow as you're out and about. Think about little Sarah Joy. Maybe around 2 o'clock, 2.30, pray that God would, would give grace to the doctor as he performs this surgery. Well, let me read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4. 
and then uh, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll work through this text. If you're newer with us, you're just visiting, we're, I realize we're just kind of parachuting down into the middle of a very complex book of the Bible, Isaiah. Um, you may be kind of lost for a little while, but hopefully we'll catch you up to the context of where we are. Um, generally, our, our, our habit is to just preach through books of the Bible, and so we're going to do that in a couple weeks. So next week on Christmas Day and then January 1st, we're just going to have a few standalone messages, um, which will be a little shorter because the kids will be in here and it's Christmas Day, right? So um, I won't kill you. I know you guys were nervous. Will was trying to get us to believe that it's going to be awesome next week, and it is with the kids in here. But we'll maybe be, I'll know my audience. We'll be a little shorter. Sermonettes for Christianettes, right? And then, um, and then... <laughs> January 1st will be similar, and then January 8th, we're going to start Romans. We're going to work through Romans. I cannot wait. Um, we're going to be in Romans for a while, so hunker down, you hairy dogs, because we're going to be in Romans for probably most of, if not beyond, 2017. I don't know where that came from. All right, Isaiah 61, <laughs> verse 1. Remember what we've been saying, that these... These passages apply to Jesus. I'm going to show you that in a second. So uh, you, can, you can picture Jesus here speaking prophetically through Isaiah about the Christ that is coming. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this, this passage. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, I just thank you for how, how kind you have been to give us the revelation of yourself. Thank you for the Derringers who are taking this word that we are so grateful for to these people in this remote area that do not have a translation of your word in their heart language. May we never take for granted how accessible your word is to us and may we not sit in judgment over your word but may it judge us, may it humble us. May your Holy Spirit work through your word to do your work this morning. I pray for my brothers and sisters who know you in this room that you would encourage and exhort and convict us. Make us more like Christ. And I pray for my friends that are in this room that do not know Jesus, that you, by your sovereign grace, would do what only you can do and that you would give the gift of faith and repentance so they can turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in you. Lord, I pray for all of the other gospel-preaching churches in our city that are speaking and extolling the glories of Christ this morning. I pray that all these same things for them, that you would encourage my brother pastors in this city. 
Lord, I pray for our country and I pray for our president. I pray in his last month or so in office that you'd give him wisdom and strength. Lord, I pray for our president-elect that you would give him grace and wisdom and humility and that you would use him for the good of your glory, your redemptive plan in this world. Lord, now as we turn our attention to your text, we pray that your will would be done. Do wonderful things this morning as your spirit works with your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I think this passage is speaking about this anointed servant, and we've been looking at various passages in Isaiah about how there is this servant of God that we know is pointing prophetically to Jesus. And we know that. Sometimes we have to do a little bit of investigative work to see what the Old Testament is saying and how it applies to Jesus in the New Testament. But in this situation, Jesus does the work for us because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus in his earthly ministry, in fact at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, directly attributes this passage that we read in Isaiah 61 to himself. So let me just read that to you very quickly in Luke chapter 4. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke. And he has been baptized and he has been tempted in the wilderness. And now he is beginning his public ministry. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, And he, meaning Jesus, came to Nazareth where, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, just by just a little short rabbit trail, that's really incredible because uh, back in Jesus' day, they didn't have chapter and verse Bible. In fact, chapter and verse numbers don't actually come until hundreds of years later, like, like after like the Reformation. And for Jesus to open up this huge scroll that would have contained what we know of as the 66 chapters of Isaiah and put his finger right where he wanted to read from, well, hashtag impressive. (laughs) That means he knew his Isaiah well. And this is what he read, what we just read in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops there and that's significant. We'll get to that in a second. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus is directly attributing Isaiah 61 to his earthly ministry. And he is announcing the arrival of this anointed servant that we just read about in Isaiah 61. So I want us to look at four truths from these four verses in Isaiah 61 about the anointed servant Jesus. Truth number one. The anointed servant brings freedom. The anointed servant brings freedom. Look at verse number one again of Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Again, this is, Jesus, this is the prophet Isaiah speaking prophetically as if it is Jesus speaking. 
Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus, the anointed servant, comes to bring freedom. Now, a question we we need to ask ourselves as we're looking at this verse is, is the freedom that Jesus is speaking about here, prophetically, the prophet Isaiah is speaking about Jesus here, is this merely a material or a spiritual freedom? Because remember, what's going on in Isaiah is the first half of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to warn the people of Israel as they were their own nation, living in the promised land that he had given them, and they were in the place where God had given them, now living out what it means to be the people of God, but they were rebelling against God. They were were worshiping other gods. They were giving themselves to idol worship, and God, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, is speaking a word of pending judgment to them. He's speaking a word of warning to them, and he's saying to them, if you continue to not be the people that I have made you to be as a light to the nations, then I am going to bring Babylon, this foreign army, to come and to capture you and to take you off into captivity. That's the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. And they don't listen to God, and in fact, that is exactly what happens. God's people are taken into Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and then many other kings, in fact, we went through that. When we, remember when we looked at the book of Daniel a few months ago, when we worked through Daniel? We were looking at Israel in Babylonian captivity. That's the result of their disobedience that God is warning them about in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Well, then after uh, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 66, it is the prophet Isaiah speaking into the future prophetically about a time when God will rescue his people from the captivity that he told them he would give them over to if they didn't obey him. And that's what's going on in the second half of Isaiah. God is comforting his people and he's telling them, I will, I will rescue you from this captivity and not only will I rescue you, but I will bring you back to the land and even though Jerusalem and Israel and the place that I have given you will be broken down, it will be destroyed when when the Babylonians captured you in the first place and ruined the city, you will build it back to what it is intended to be. And so this is God speaking words of comfort. So when he says to these people, when these words, when it says here that I will give freedom to the captive, the, the, modern, the, the, the first century hearer of these words and then the Jewish hearer of these words from Isaiah would have instinctively read that as a physical rescue from the captivity of Babylon, and certainly it is that. So in one sense, yes, the captivity that Jesus frees us from is a, is a material captivity. It, it is from the things in this earth, maybe oppression, maybe even physical, financial poverty to some degree, but, but I think that the real essence of what's happening here is a spiritual freedom that Jesus has come to give his people. These tangible Old Testament pictures of Babylonian captivity that the prophet is speaking about Jesus, how he will come and free his people from, is ultimately meant to be a kind of earthly, temporary picture of the true freedom that Jesus brings, which is not material, but spiritual. 
Because what if, what if Jesus just freed all of the people that were in oppression from their political captors, but he left their souls far from him? What good is it to be a free man politically, but a lost man spiritually? And so the point here that clearly the prophet is speaking about into the future is that Jesus comes to give spiritual freedom to those that will trust in him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the British preacher, the, uh, the London pastor in the mid-1900s, and, and you need to just get ready for lots of Martin Lloyd-Jones quotes because uh, he wrote a 14-volume set commentary on Romans, which I have, which I'm reading, and then those are all messages, and they're all preserved on uh, MP3. He preached in London right after World War II, all the way up until his death in the, I think, the late 1970s. Um, He's that guy that, remember, I was telling you that when the Germans were bombing London, uh, and he was preaching that the, the bombs would be shaking the plaster off of the roof in the Westminster Chapel there. And he would be preaching as the Germans were bombing. It would shake the building. Plaster would fall. He would stop, wait for the pl- plaster to fall, and then keep on preaching. Like a boss. <laughs> you just need to prep yourself for lots of Lloyd-Jones quotes because I've been listening to him a lot and reading him in preparation for Romans. And this is what he says about the gospel and its relationship, the freedom that God brings in the gospel and its relationship to our earthly circumstances. He says this, the gospel gives us very little hope about changing circumstances. And I think by that he means our physical circumstances. The gospel solves the problem by changing us, not the circumstances. So the first thing that I think we should see here is that the anointed servant brings freedom and it's more than just freedom from temporary situations or political captivity, whatever God's people have faced through the ages, but it is ultimately pointing towards this internal spiritual freedom that lasts for eternity. Now there's something else that we need to look at before we move on to truth number two is that this freedom is in a sense, it's instant, this spiritual freedom is instant and progressive. So in one sense, when you are born again, when, when God by his sovereign cr- uh, grace, as Ephesians 2 says, makes you alive, that is a moment that you become alive. But in a, another sense, salvation, freedom, is progressive. It's something that we develop and grow in over time. I, I refer to this story a lot, and I thought we would... Take a moment just to read a few parts of it in John chapter 11, where Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. So go to John chapter 11 if you have a Bible. If you don't want to flip there, you'll see it on the screen. I'll pick up in verse 38. So just to give you a little background, remember what's happening here is that Jesus has these three friends, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. It's a set of siblings there. And Lazarus, Jesus' friend, is very, very sick. And Mary and Martha come to Jesus. And they say he was away in another town ministering. And they say, Jesus, if you would come, our brother's sick. We know that you can heal him. Please come and, and heal our brother of his sickness. And Jesus says, he, he almost kind of puts them off and says, no, I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it. And Jesus takes his own sweet time. And in the meantime... As Jesus seems to intentionally be stalling, in fact, Lazarus does die. And Mary and Martha are very upset with him. Um, they, they're, they're thinking, Jesus, if you would have only been here, uh, you could have healed him. 
but they don't understand that Jesus was setting this scene up for a greater display of his power to put into his book something that would display through the ages Jesus' reign over life itself and even death itself. And in verse 38, it says this, and I'm sorry that I'm sniffling, but I have a little bit of a cold and I'm on the verge of a sneeze. So pray for me. Verse 38 of John 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. And if you have a King James Version, I know some of you love that beautiful translation. It says that he stinketh, right? That's good. And what the Bible is doing there is it's wanting to emphasize to us that Lazarus is dead. By the way, that is the spiritual condition of everybody apart from Christ. We are dead in our sins. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, listen to this, Lazarus, come out. So Jesus' life-giving word comes, hits Lazarus' dead heart. Friends, this is a picture of how salvation works. One of the reasons I think, I think the primary reason why this story is recorded in the Bible is to give us a kind of spiritual picture of the salvation of every human soul. The Bible says clearly that we are dead in our sins, unable, as Romans 8, 7, and 8 says, to obey God in any way, to make ourselves right with him. We're dead in our sins. Jesus rolls up to the tomb of Lazarus, who's dead, physically dead, as a kind of picture of spiritual death, and by his free grace, says to Lazarus, get up. He doesn't say, Lazarus, if you will do something, I'll meet you halfway and meet you with grace. He makes a dead man alive. Right? That, that's the gospel. That's the glory of the gospel. It's not clean yourself up and then Jesus will, will help you out into a better life. It's not square yourself away until you can fit into a group of people who look like they know what they're doing. And by the way, if that's you right now and you're wondering and you're intimidated by this crowd, <laughs> don't be. I know them. I know them. They're a lot like me. They're, 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 they're train wrecks, right? And the glory of the gospel is that Jesus makes dead people alive. And that's what he does to Lazarus here. But I want you to, I want you to see, and I, I'm actually not even at the point I want to make out of this passage, all right? Let's keep going. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. That is freedom instantaneously. You were dead, now you're alive. But then look at what it says. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, apparently all of the people around there looking at this miracle, unbind him and let him go. So I want you to see just even in this, this little passage, this picture of the instantaneous work of freedom and the progressive work of freedom. Lazarus was dead. He's now alive. But he needed some help to become all that Jesus intended him for him to be after his resurrection. 
Somebody help him get those, those, those strips off of him, right? And maybe if somebody's got a shower, you know, you could take Lazarus to give him a little scrub down, maybe a meal, right? That's a kind of picture of the progressive nature of freedom that comes. And so why do I bring out this point about how the anointed servant brings freedom? It's instantaneous and progressive because we need to build into our understanding of how God changes people some progress, some progressive nature of salvation, right? There is this, this, this culture that exists in many churches that says that once you come to Christ, you need to have everything squared away. And friends, that is death to growth, right? It's death to true Christian liberty over the course of time. We have to create a culture as we look at the gospel, where, and we say it here often, where it is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay. Does that make sense? So the implications of this are profound. It means that we need to have room for one another's, like, you know, the fact that we still stink a little bit. We need to have room for the fact that we've still got grave clothes on even though we're alive. And this has profound implications about the way that we have grace and mercy and patience for one another because all of us, to some degree, even though we may be alive, are still walking around with grave clothes on that need to be taken off of us. Amen? So look to the person next to you and say, you still stink. No, don't, don't do it. <laughs> don't do that. I got in that habit about that, looked at, uh, making fun of TV prosperity preachers. Anyway. And I just want one, one other little note. Just look at how God brings this freedom. He brings it. It says in verse 1 there of Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring or proclaim the good news. Sometimes people will pit the word of God, the good news, the proclamation of God's word against the spirit of God. Jesus has no problem with that. He says that the Spirit of God, you, even here you see a beautiful picture of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together in harmony to bring about the redemption of his people. And Jesus, the Son of God, is saying that the Spirit of God is on me to proclaim the Word of God. So the Word and the Spirit work together. Why is that important? Because churches like us, let's, 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 let's be self-aware, Churches like us that really value the Bible and doctrine and truth and have a bookstore or a resource room with stuff written by a bunch of dead guys from the 1500s and 1600s and quotes from John Calvin and Spurgeon and Luther and Jonathan Edwards on our screen can tend towards a sort of, st a sort of stuffiness. Amen? You're like, not me. Yeah. But then there's a, another sort of stream of Christianity that is kind of all spirit, right? It's just like, you know, let's just, who cares if we get to the word of God today? We're, I mean, the, the songs were so amazing and anointed, somebody broke out the tambourine and we didn't even get to the sermon, praise God, right? As if that's a good thing. And that, that is, that, see, sometimes those types of Christians and streams of Christianity can sort of be pitted against one another. But I think a right understanding of biblical Christianity is that word and spirit work together. The light of God's word, when rightly preached and received, brings the heat and the passion of the Holy Spirit, right? 
So as we hear the word of God, let's not be doctrinal neatniks that let it just land on us for mere academic knowledge, but let it warm our hearts with grace towards one another and compassion for the world and let it fuel a warmth. Remember what we say here often is that good theology should lead to good doxology. What does that mean? Good study of God, theology, should lead to doxology, the worship of God, right? So we should be people that are warm-hearted and deep thinkers. John Stott, another dead Englishman, said this. He just died pretty recently, though. He said that the word without the spirit will dry us up. The spirit without the word will blow us up. But the word and the spirit together will grow us up, right? That's good. I thought so, anyway. All right, truth number two. The anointed servant brings God's favor and vengeance. Notice that, that, that seeming contradiction there, favor and vengeance. So verse two, again, from Isaiah 61. It says that this servant will come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Remember when we were reading Luke 4, and I noted that Jesus stopped halfway through this verse, and in Jesus' recitation of this verse in the temple that day, he doesn't, he stops right after the Lord's favor, and he doesn't read that part about the day of God's vengeance. Why is that? It's because Jesus, this verse prophetically in Isaiah 61, hundreds of years before Jesus came, is speaking about the whole ministry of Jesus, his first coming and his second coming. His coming as a lamb and his coming as a lion. When Jesus is announcing his ministry and reciting in this verse in Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, he leaves off the part about how he will come with vengeance because he's really, at that moment, just speaking about his first coming. But we know that Jesus comes not only to bring favor, but to bring vengeance. Let's look at favor first, the favor of God. This phrase is, is for modern, for, for uh, Israel, Israelite hearers of the day in Isaiah and in Luke chapter 4 would have instantly uh, put the Lord's favor with this idea of the year of Jubilee that we read about in Leviticus chapter 25. And what was the year of Jubilee about? Well, God in his law told his people how they were supposed to uh, really take care of the, the created world and animals and all of their possessions. And one of the things that they were to do with the land that they were farming was to every 50th year, so it would be seven years times seven, so kind of full completion of all these, these, these uh, years, they were to give the land a rest on the 50th year. So after 49 years, seven sevens, they were to give the land a rest and not farm. They were to release all of the slaves. They were to forgive all of the debts that they would have against their neighbor. And it was this 50th Every 50th year would be this year of the Lord's favor, this year of jubilee. And Jesus is looking at his ministry, and he's saying that I have come to proclaim this, this year of jubilee, this year of the Lord's favor. So even what's going on with crops and dirt and produce in the Old Testament is a kind of picture of the gospel that will come. Do you see this? Even how God arranges the agricultural calendar of the Old Testament Israel is 
pointing towards the grace that will come in Jesus. He says, every 50th year, give the dirt and your workers a break. Forgive debts. Let it be a year of enjoyment of all that God has given you. And that is pointing towards Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus comes to say that he brings the Lord's favor. And how does he do that? Friends, that's we know that's obviously not in a prosperity gospel sense. Jesus comes to bring the favor of God by bearing. Listen to this carefully. This is just the heart of the Bible. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of this message. It's the heart of everything that we do here. How does Jesus bring and proclaim the Lord's favor? He does it by bearing the wrath of God on the cross in our stead. This is the good news of the Bible. This is what it's all about. God is holy and righteous and good. He has created everything that is, and as a pinnacle of his creation, he creates mankind, Adam and Eve, who are the first parents of every person in this room. We are all descended from our first parents, Adam and Eve. We all bear their sin nature. We are all born separated from God. We're not born neutral. The Bible is very clear about that. It says that we are by nature rebels. And Jesus becomes a man, God in the flesh, He becomes a kind of new and second Adam where the first Adam and all of his progeny have failed. Jesus succeeds, fully man, fully God, perfect in his life and obedience to God the Father, then lays down his life on the cross voluntarily, willingly, to bear the punishment of God that should have been his people's. And because he's not just a good and righteous man, but because he is the eternal Holy Son of God, Jesus has enough, more than enough, righteousness to atone for the sin of all who would ever trust in him. And Jesus does that on the cross. He satisfies the wrath of God, and he doesn't just take away the punishment that should have been ours, but he turns it into grace and favor. And now the righteousness that Jesus has, because of his obedience and his infinite holiness, he now gives to those who put their trust in him. That's how Jesus brings favor. That's the gospel. And when the anointed servant in Isaiah 61 and Jesus repeats it in Luke 4, when he says that I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's what he's speaking of, the gospel itself, that we would be right with God. Now we who were separated from God are now sons and daughters of God. What, what, a, what a great truth. Just think about that idea that, that we now have the favor of God on us. And that does not in any way mean that we're going to get, we can just pray and God will get us out of some stupid situation that we've got ourselves in or that God just gives us riches. That's, that's a wrong application of that. But I do want us to think about this one, this one thought. Is that Understanding what God has done in his son on the cross to bring us his favor should make us bold in coming to God and asking him for his grace in our lives in, in just every situation. Listen, listen to these words from, you may have heard of him, Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> Another, uh, I, if you're new, we laugh because I, I quote Spurgeon all the time here. He's my favorite historical hero other than Jesus and the Bible figures. And I, I sometimes get kidded about how often I quote Spurgeon. And I'm reading this latest book I got of his. It's called Letters of Charles Spurgeon. Don't get excited. I'm not giving this away. Um, and there's this picture of a young Spurgeon on here without a beard. And 
Now I see why he grew a beard. That's <laughs> anyway, he started pastoring this church in London when he was 17 years old. Can you imagine that? You, you didn't want the 17-year-old Brad to be your pastor. I'll tell you that much right now. But he writes this, he writes this letter to a pastoral friend that he's trying to encourage. And he's encouraging his pastor friend to ask great things of God. Because if we are in Christ, he is our father. And it should be more than just a mundane academic exercise. Our salvation should produce in us a boldness and an earnestness to come to our father and ask him for great things. Not prosperity gospel, false gospel junk, but for God to move in great ways. Listen to this, Listen to this letter from Uncle Chuck to a pastor friend. And he's asking for God to move in a in a, just a great way evangelistically. He says, oh, for thousands of real conversions. We want no sham penitents and noisy professors, but men and women whose hearts are sick of sin and whose minds find real rest in Jesus. This must be the work of the Holy Ghost, and therefore the godly must pray mightily for you. All must begin and end at the throne of grace. You and I know this and have felt the truth of it, and therefore we put it in the forefront of the battle. Give my love to the Lord's servants who are helping you. Listen to this. And bid them ask great things from the great God. Why should we look for so little and reap so little? The God of Pentecost is with us. It's a shame sometimes that people who have the best understanding of the gospel and the sovereignty of God in all things are the least likely to passionately seek God. Let's not be those type of people. Let's know that God's favor invites us to come to a good father to pray for the rebellious child, to ask for the good report from the doctor. To pray to God for Robert and Sigourney right now that God would do wonderful things through the hands of an even maybe unbelieving physician for the sake of this precious baby girl. That God in his grace would minister to the Bennett and Anders family in a way that we cannot imagine. So that in some way that we cannot see from this vantage point, he would take ashes and turn them into beautiful things in decades to come. We have that type of privilege as sons and daughters of God because God has given us his favor, not because we are good, but because his son is good and he's gone before us. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how we need to be more expressive. <laughs> and we review the service every Tuesday, and um, Will had a critique for me, Will Hawk, and he was so right on. I was chastened by it, and I was helped by it. And he said, Brad, when you um, sometimes you tell people that they should be more expressive, and you know, that's just me, if you're, not, if you're an introvert, don't, don't feel you know, ostracized. But he said, then Brad, when you do it, and then they kind of give a half clap, like, like, then you bust their chops and tell them, no, I'll give it. He says, it's like you're crushing the very thing that you're asking for, let, let it swell up, like let, let, it, let them grow in it. So, uh, no, 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 no. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to listen, no, I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I'm just, I wasn't, I'm just, thank you, Will, for that. I was helped, but I wasn't trying to beg for it. Ah, whatever. Okay, let's, 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 let's move on to point three. The, 
Anointed servant brings comfort to broken people. Listen to what he says back in Isaiah 61, picking up midway through verse 2. He says, to comfort all who mourn. (laughs) To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. (laughs) That they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that that he may be glorified. (sighs) Forgive my emotion. I'm just thinking of these two sweet families that lost this precious daughter this week. And and notice just the good news here that that the anointed Jesus comes to comfort broken people. You know, earlier on when we were reading in John 11 about Lazarus, earlier on in that chapter, there's something so profound I think it might be like the shortest verse in the Bible, so maybe some of you guys memorize this for a piece of candy in VBS. But when Jesus hears the news of Lazarus' passing from Martha and Mary, it says that Jesus wept. Now think about that for a second, because we already know from Jesus' setup and his initial interactions with the sisters that there's something else going on here that he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet, Jesus, even knowing that, enters into the pain of these people that he loves and he weeps. So, I mean, just think about the, how profound that is. The God-man Christ Jesus who knows that in a few moments he is going to reverse the curse of death and everything is going to be wonderful, weeps the creator God of the universe enters into the pain of humanity and he weeps even though he knows he is going to someday make all things right. The beauty of the gospel in all of its splendor is that Jesus doesn't just come to save from a distance, chide us for our weakness, remind us of why we're in the situation that we're in. Because remember, the reason why Israel was broken, the reason why they were mourning, is not because something happened to them from the outside, like they were mere uh, innocent bystanders, but they were put into this situation because of their own sin. And isn't that the nature of human brokenness? We mourn because of outside things and we mourn because of internal things. It's a mixture of a mess that we all find ourselves in. And Jesus doesn't chide them them and say, if you would have just done this or that. He comes and he weeps and he promises that he is with them and that he will give them a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Jesus comes to comfort broken people. Which leads us to the final truth. And it is this. The anointed servant, Jesus, makes broken people useful. Look at verse 4. It says they, speaking of the they that Jesus has comforted, the broken people that he has now rescued, set free, they 
Israel in the Old Testament, us in the New, God's people, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. In one sense, this prophetic word from Isaiah has a literal fulfillment because that's exactly what happened at the end of the Old Testament. In the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, we read about how God set his people free. Well, he sends the Persian Empire to conquer the Babylonian Empire who were in charge of God's people and he gives this Persian king Cyrus to be gracious to God's people and lets God's people go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And in fact, the Old Testament ends with the building project of the ancient ruins of Jerusalem being restored. So in in a literal sense, this prophecy comes true through the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra at the end of the Old Testament. But in a spiritual sense, it becomes true of us in our day that God uses us, broken people, who he has set free, who he has comforted to build up his work. He uses broken people to be useful in the redemption of more broken people. In the ESV study Bible, there was this note on this verse that I thought was so good. Rarely would I quote a, a study Bible note, but this just almost felt like devotional. It felt like something like, well, it felt like something Spurgeon would say. It says this, The poor become, through the Messiah, creative restorers of the sad situations that man has had to live with for so long. Every human ideal falls into ruins in this world of death. But the new culture of life in the city of God will thrive forever. As God uses broken people to bring about his grace to a broken world. Isn't that good news? And I see so many examples of, of that at Crosspoint. I think about, I think about the... the I, I probably shouldn't mention names. You guys know who they are, and I'm going to start naming some. But I think about the Crosspoint member who started, Grant Scarborough, who started a, a medical clinic for, for indigent patients and people that have no insurance, for the poor in Bibb City. I think about the people that have come around him. They are, they are creative restorers of sad situations. I think about a young lady who's a teacher in the public schools here in Columbus, and she left her job in the public schools and took a teaching job at Truth Spring Academy with Highland Community Church and the wonderful work being done by Highland Community and Rob Strickland and is now teaching kindergartners and first graders and little kids, probably getting a whole lot less money working as a teacher in that than she would have in the public school system and, and being a creative restorer of sad situations. The other day I was in the office walking by and and uh, there was this group of people from Crosspoint meeting with Brad Griffith. Brad used to be a member here, and now he's on staff at Westminster Presbyterian. And he started this organization called Clement Arts, which helps to minister to families that are adopting or fostering children. And there was a group of people from Crosspoint, or who I guess who are kind of a board uh, that helps to uh, lead Clement Arts, and they were thinking about ways and just having a meeting about 
propelling the ministry of Clement Arts so that more families could adopt more children and foster more children. And those people were being creative restorers of sad situations, right? I think about, I think about uh, two ladies, Cindy Ogle in particular, who a couple, about a month ago, was up on this stage in our member meeting sharing about their recent mission trip to China and how her and Sherry Duncan were sharing with this young lady, just two just American women from Crosspoint that go to China for a couple weeks to share the gospel on a college campus and the fruit that then I hear from Elaine Soche as she's in contact with Travis Todd, the missionary there, about how people are trusting in Christ just, just from a conversation between Cindy and Sherry and this person. And I think about these just ordinary, everyday people being sad. They're, they're creative restorers of sad situations. I think about Aaron and Jamie Derringer. I mean, they were in Hawaii. <laughs> and they pushed it all into the middle of the table. And, 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 and they're wonderful people, right? But they're just ordinary folks. I mean, they were pretty impressive. But, but at the end of the day, they're just ordinary people, right? And, and they are creative restorers of sad situations. And I, I think about young soldiers in this church who are intentionally thinking about ways to bring the gospel to unbelieving uh, fellow soldiers that they are with during training at Fort Benning. And, and let me tell you, infantry battalions and armor, I don't know what you guys call your, or your troops, whatever you guys do, you people that do tanks, whatever you, you call it, they are dark places. And I think about... Over the years, the many conversations I've had with young soldiers who are taking the gospel, just individually sharing it with people, and they are creative restorers of sad situations because this verse written hundreds of years ago about the anointed service, servant is true in the lives of the ordinary people in this church. They shall build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair ruined cities the devastations of many generations as we live as heralds of the anointed servant proclaiming the good news to the spiritually poor and wounded and bound up in our day. What a privilege. What a privilege. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us respond and apply. Father, there are really only two types of people in this room this morning. Those who have been made new by your grace, those who have your favor, and those who, if, unless they would have your favor, they someday will face your vengeance. There really are only two types of people, those that are in Christ and those who are not yet trusting in him in this room. For my friends that are in Christ, who have been made alive by your grace, I pray that this passage in Isaiah and this picture of the anointed servant Jesus would stir our hearts with affection. I pray that we would ask for great things from a great God that we wouldn't reap little because we ask little, that, God, you would do wonderful things, not material things, but spiritual things, that you would use us for your glory and that we would be warm-hearted, 
that we would have the light of your word and the heat of your spirit propel us into life and mission and joy. And that even today, at the end of this prayer, when the team is leading us, that, that we might even use this time to pray for you to bring that about in our lives in a greater way. For the second type of person in this room, the person who is not yet trusting in Jesus. Lord, their only hope is that you, by your grace, would give them what you require of them, that you would give them a new heart so that they can believe. Lord, Lord, I'm not asking them to, to straighten themselves up, to make themselves a good candidate of your grace, but God, would you do what only you can do? And would you open their eyes? Would they see the beauty of the risen king, the anointed servant who comes to give freedom, who comes to give grace, who comes to build up the mourner and to restore them and set them on mission. God, would you take that person and open their eyes so that they can see Jesus, so that they can turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope and faith in Christ. And friend, if that is you, you don't need to recite a prayer. You don't need to do anything other than look away from yourself and put your hope in Jesus. And it looks simply as maybe just a, a cry out to God, Lord, I trust not in myself, but in what you have done through your Son to make me right with you. If you believe that, cry out those, that truth in your own way to God. And before you leave this building today, I'd love to speak to you or find somebody that you know to be a Christian and speak to them about this desire you have to trust in Christ and let us help you do that. Father, now as we worship and respond, I pray that you would encourage and do wonderful things among us. In Jesus' name, amen.